Thank you for convening this hearing and for considering my nomination as Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. I am humbled and honored to be here. This week, the Supreme Court confirmation hearings began for Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. As you might remember, in recent years, these hearings for other Supreme Court nominees have been pretty contentious. There was the hearing for Neil Gorsuch, whose seat many Democrats felt rightfully belonged to Merrick Garland. Unfortunately, due to unprecedented treatment, Judge Garland was denied a hearing, and this vacancy has been in place for well over a year. There was the hearing for Brett Kavanaugh and questions around assault allegations against him. This onslaught of last-minute allegations does not ring true. I'm not questioning that Dr. Ford may have been sexually assaulted by some person in some place at some time. But I have never done this to her or to anyone. Even the nomination for Amy Coney Barrett came in the last weeks before the 2020 presidential election, and that was pretty intense. Judges can't just wake up one day and say, I have an agenda, I like guns, I hate guns, I like abortion, I hate abortion, and walk in like a, a royal queen and impose you know, their will on the world. So I asked Aaron Blake, senior political reporter for The Post, with what we've seen so far in Judge Jackson's confirmation hearing, where would he put this on the scale of contentiousness? I think from what we have seen so far, this hearing is not going to be on the level of a Clarence Thomas, a Brett Kavanaugh, a Robert Bork, or any of those kinds of hearings that come to mind when you talk about really brutal fights over Supreme Court nominations. I think that's for a couple reasons. Pretty high on that list would be that this nomination isn't going to change the balance of power in the Supreme Court. We have a Democratic nominee who would be replacing uh, a Democratic-nominated justice. Another is that this is just not a situation which Republicans probably can defeat this nominee. Yes, Democrats only have 50 votes in the Senate, but they can confirm this justice with those 50 votes under the rules that have been changed over the years. And so Republicans are really confronting a situation in which they have to decide precisely how hard they want to fight this. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, March 22nd. Today, we're talking about the confirmation hearings of Judge Jackson and how Republicans are weighing the costs and benefits of putting up a big fight against this Supreme Court nominee. I think last week on Friday, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell sent a pretty strong signal that perhaps this wasn't one in which Republicans should really go all out because she was highly likely to be confirmed in the end. And in addition to that, the fact that she's such a historic nominee, I, I think, brought in an extra level of diciness of do Republicans want to kind of go to the mat in opposing a nominee who would be the first black woman Supreme Court justice in the history of the court? I, I think that certainly plays a role in this. If you look at shortly after we learned there would be a vacancy for the Supreme Court when Justice Stephen Breyer announced he would be retiring, there was a lot of talk, especially among conservative pundits 
candidates, but even among some Republican members of the Judiciary Committee about the idea that this was a quota pick or an affirmative action hire because President Biden had said that he would nominate a black woman to this job. And so I think there was a real question about how much Republicans would press forward with that charge. Would they lift up Ketanji Brown-Jackson as an affirmative action pick or a quota hire? We have seen very little evidence that they intend to press that case in the last day plus. I think that's reflective of the fact that they're treading a little bit lightly around a nomination that won't flip the balance of power and is somewhat of a minefield when it comes to pushing back too hard against it. So tell me what we've seen so far about what Republicans are trying to do here. What are the questions that they're asking and and how does that get to the strategy that they think will be helpful in the situation? So I really see three themes emerging early in this confirmation process. One is the more standard issue questions that you see from the likes of Senator Grassley, some of the more established members of the Judiciary Committee. Others you are seeing basically talking a lot about hearings that have been in the past, not necessarily this hearing. They're talking about how Democrats allegedly mistreated Robert Bork, Clarence Thomas. It is only one side of the aisle that with Justice Clarence Thomas was so reprehensible. The president who nominated him, President George Herbert Walker Bush, wrote at the time, quote, what's happening to Clarence Thomas is just plain horrible. Brett Kavanaugh, and also lower court, uh, appeals court nominees like Janice Rogers Brown and Miguel Estrada. And then most of the members of this committee remember the confirmation hearing of Brett Kavanaugh, one of the lowest moments in the history of this committee. They want to drive home the idea that Democrats are hailing this pick as a big step forward for diversity, but that they have gone after diverse Republican nominees for the courts in the past. And then the third thing that I think is is emerging here is that a handful of more conservative senators on the Judiciary Committee are going after her record in much more in-your-face ways than we are seeing with those other Republican senators. The big one is Senator Josh Hawley talking about her record on child pornography cases and the sentences that come out of those. What concerns me, and I've been very candid about this, is that in every case, in each of these seven, Judge Jackson handed down a lenient sentence that was below what the federal guidelines recommended. Congress has decided what it is that a judge has to do in this and any other case when they sentence. And that statute, that statute doesn't say look only at the guidelines and stop. The statute doesn't say um, impose the, the highest possible penalty for this sickening and egregious crime. The, the statute says it, calculate the guidelines, but also look at various aspects of this offense and impose a sentence that is, quote, sufficient but not greater than necessary to promote the purposes of punishment. The Washington Post fact checker and even some conservative pundits like Andrew McCarthy of the National Review have found those attacks to be misleading in the way that they characterize her record and how that compares to other judges. And can I ask, is a question here that she didn't give sentences that Republicans think were long enough in child pornography cases? Right. The idea is that she somehow differentiated conduct between more egregious 
you know, instances of pedophilia and people who trafficked in child pornography. What the records have shown is that her sentences were, were generally within the guidelines and not all that different from how other judges have handled these cases. What are some of the other issues that have come up in the last couple of days? One thing that is coming up more and more, and I think will be a feature of these hearings for the next couple of days, is her representation of Guantanamo Bay detainees. This is something that came up in her previous confirmation hearings. Republicans didn't press so hard back then, but now they have more time with her and have signaled that that's going to be a focal point for them. And what did Judge Jackson have to say in response to that of Republicans questioning her record on Guantanamo Bay? Basically, what she has said is that she took on these roles as someone who was a public defender. Federal public defenders don't get to pick their clients. They have to represent uh, whoever comes in, and it's a service. That's what you do as a federal public defender. You are standing up for the constitutional value of representation. Uh, She was not given a choice to represent these clients or not represent these clients. When this came up in her previous confirmation hearings, the Republicans asked her whether she had any second thoughts about taking on those cases. And she basically said that this is something that uh, lawyers do. They take on cases where they may not agree with the people they're representing, but everybody is entitled to a legal defense. After the break, how Jackson responds to questions about her views on affirmative action. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. It's also interesting hearing the ways that Judge Jackson is bringing in little parts of her personal life or her family life in talking about her ability to navigate complex issues when it comes to Guantanamo Bay or even policing and law enforcement. She talks about the fact that she has a brother who served in the military, and she talked about the fact that she has family members who were police officers or even a police chief. And I wonder why you think that's happening or what she's trying to do here in her response to these have questions. Yeah, there's certainly been a large degree of attempts to insulate herself from the attacks that she has to know are coming because she went through this process a year ago. Uh, she went through this process in 2012. And so you're right, she's talked about her brother serving in the military as a way to guard against the uh, attacks on her representing Guantanamo detainees. September 11th was a tragic attack on this country. There were many defenses, important defenses, that Americans undertook. There were Americans whose service came in the form of military action. My brother was one of those Americans, those brave Americans who um, decided to join the military to, to defend our country. The other thing that I think was was really interesting, uh, and maybe this doesn't 
pertain to her trying to insulate herself from some of these attacks is uh, in her opening statement on Monday, she alluded to her uh, battles with raising her children. And she basically acknowledged that at certain points in her life, she hadn't gotten the balance between her career and her, um, her role as a parent quite right. I'm saving a special moment in this introduction for my daughters, Talia and Layla. Girls, I know it has not been easy as I've tried to navigate the challenges of juggling my career and motherhood. Which I thought was a really interesting moment of humility um, that we tend to see in some form in these hearings, but she certainly seemed to make a point of, uh, of putting front and center at the very beginning. How would you describe Judge Jackson and all of this in terms of her way of handling this like marathon session of questions, oftentimes, you know, and, and we see in these hearings from both sides of the aisle questions that are often meant to either incite a reaction or that are sort of grandstanding. And it's sometimes indicative to see how people respond when they're sitting in that room hearing that. So, so how would you describe her? So I think that Generally speaking, if you go into these hearings and you think you will be confirmed, you you approach them a little bit differently. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh made a very angry display when he was accused of sexual misconduct because he had to deliver a forceful uh, rebuttal to those charges. I think Judge Jackson has been very careful from the beginning. She's taken her time when responding, basically trying to avoid any kinds of slip-ups. She's not going outside the norm when it comes to hypotheticals or things like that. And I think this is something that uh, Republicans have acknowledged is a, a hurdle for them in fighting against her. There was a podcast shortly before her nomination in which Senator Cruz acknowledged that during her previous confirmation hearings, she had been exceptionally careful. And in Cruz's estimation, this made it much more difficult to defeat her because she didn't have that kind of paper trail. She didn't have some of these more extreme statements that some of these other past Supreme Court nominees we've talked about, or, or even lower court nominees, had to contend with when they were being confirmed. So I think given that backdrop and given the likelihood of confirmation, the name of the game for Judge Jackson is to, to play it as carefully as possible and to not be goaded into some of these kinds of intense back and forth that some of these Republican senators will be seeking. I also want to come back to what you said about these initial accusations that Judge Jackson essentially benefited from affirmative action here, that she was part of this quota to nominate a Black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. And even though that hasn't come up as much during these hearings as an accusation from Republicans, there are questions around the role of affirmative action in higher education and other issues that Judge Jackson would have to rule on related to affirmative action. Can you talk a little bit more about how that's come up so far and how she is navigating those questions? Yes, I think when you talk about a confirmation that seems likely, the hearings can serve as a way to gain concessions or at least push the future justice in a direction that could matter in future cases. And I think that that is number one on that list for Republicans is the upcoming Harvard affirmative action case. The argument, not just from Republicans, but also from neutral court reform groups, is that Judge Jackson should recuse herself from the Harvard affirmative action case because she serves on the governing board at Harvard. There are cases in which justices have recused in similar circumstances, though, of course, there are slight differences in, in all of these cases. But of course, generally, even though justices do recuse 
from certain cases. It's rare that it happens in a case of this significant of a profile. And certainly having a Justice Jackson not involved in that case would dilute the uh, left wing of the court's ability to guide this decision in a direction that they would prefer. And so I think it's a very difficult challenge for her. And, And so far, we haven't seen a whole lot of this, but I would expect that as the hearings proceed, we're going to see much more talk about that Harvard affirmative action case and and questioning about whether she should recuse. I also think it's worth noting that in the 2020 confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, she actually preemptively said that she would recuse herself from any cases that involved Notre Dame University, where she served as a law professor. So there is some precedent here under pretty similar circumstances. What are some of your other questions for this process as it continues through the week? I think a big question is how Republicans contend with the motivations that some of the members of the Judiciary Committee might have. Uh, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, these are, are Republicans who probably want to run for president at some point here. Ted Cruz has run for president. And so they have a motivation to handle things in a way that appeals to the conservative base, but might give somebody like Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell a little bit of heartburn. Josh Hawley and Marsha Blackburn have both launched into charges against Judge Jackson that are are misleading at best, uh, take her words out of context. And so there is a little bit of a dissonance when it comes to how Republicans are handling these things. And there are differing motivations when it comes to how this impacts these senators' personal political futures and how the party as a whole wants to handle these things. So I think comparing how uh, Republican senators question her is going to be a, a big question moving forward. And we're already seeing some pretty big gaps in how they're handling this. So what's even more interesting about this hearing with Judge Jackson is that this is not the first time that she is before this committee being questioned. I mean, she was confirmed for her current job relatively recently, and Republicans voted for her then, at least some of them. So so how are those Republicans navigating this now that she's coming back and they may or may not have a different way of viewing her now that she's up for the Supreme Court? Yeah, that's right. It's very rare that we have somebody like Judge Jackson undergoing confirmation hearings just a year apart. In 2021, she received three Republican votes, Senator Lindsey Graham, Senator Lisa Murkowski, and Senator Susan Collins. All three have said to this point that they will apply a somewhat different standard given the Supreme Court is more significant than the appeals court. And I think Maybe the most interesting news on this front is that on Monday and into Tuesday, Senator Lindsey Graham was very skeptical of Judge Jackson. Uh, He even signaled that he might vote against her, uh, it seemed, according to what he was saying, because President Biden hadn't selected his preferred uh, candidate, who was uh, Judge Michelle Childs of South Carolina. So it seems unlikely she will get as many votes as she did last time. Maybe the question from there is whether any Republicans wind up voting from her. And so keep an eye on those three, Lindsey Graham, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins, because those are the ones that would seem to be in play moving forward. Aaron, as as you explained from the outset, this is kind of, I don't want to say a done deal for Senate Democrats, but they seem to be very united on this candidate, barring any circumstance or tragedy. um, They have the votes to be able to confirm her. So I wonder, what do you think is at stake in all of this? Well, I think that, as you said, the uh, Supreme Court confirmation isn't done until it's done. And that is especially the case in a Senate in which 
Democrats only have 50 votes. We are not that far removed from one of these senators suffering a stroke and being out of the Senate for a significant period of time. Of course, I'm referring to Senator Ben Ray Lujan of New Mexico. The Democrats' majority has always been more tenuous than I think a lot of people want to believe because of things like that. And we've seen in past judicial nominations that they really can't count on any votes from Republican senators. All Republicans voted for Brett Kavanaugh, for instance. And so I I think that what we're seeing in many ways is a fight that is preparing for the unforeseen, laying the groundwork for that circumstance in which this could ultimately be potentially in doubt. And so it does matter. It's important when it comes to the answers that she gives to signal her her judicial philosophy. But it also matters, just practically speaking, when it comes to what the future of the court is going to look like, because this process has shown a tendency to surprise us. And anybody who's participating would do well to take that into account as they proceed in these nominations. Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you. Aaron Blake is a senior political reporter for The Fix. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Jordan Marie Smith and Emma Talkoff. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Ariel Plotnick, with special thanks to reporter Rhonda Colvin. Judge Jackson's confirmation hearings will continue for two more days, and we've got great live coverage and analysis of those hearings that you can watch at WashingtonPost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.